Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that your spirit would speak to us through your word, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts. May you change us to be better followers of you and the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. So it is our practice ordinarily to preach through the various books of the Bible Uh, We've been examining Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome for over a year now, and we find ourselves at the end of the first half of this epistle. And so we've considered mainly that whole doctrinal uh, section of Paul's letter, and Lord willing, when we get to chapter 12, all of the imperatives and these duties of the Christian life will begin to manifest themselves left and right. And just so we can remember, just recall where Paul began this letter to the Romans. In chapter 1, he he said in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And so he began in chapter 1 to talk about the gospel and then the, the wrath of God. And then he shows in chapter 3 how both Jew and Gentile are under sin. Uh, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But then he comes to the end of chapter 3 and talks about that righteousness that comes apart from the law. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he talks about this thing called propitiation. Where on the cross, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second person of the Godhead, would hang And take upon himself the wrath of his father, which is the wrath that you and I both deserve. And so by taking that and paying for our sins, we now have the forgiveness of our sins through faith in him. And we have his righteousness so that if we are children of God, if we are children by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God treats us just like he has treated the Lord Jesus Christ and continues to treat him in his righteousness. And so we are children of God, forgiven forever. And so there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so over the past few months, we have been considering, we've been considering chapters 9 through 11, where the apostle deals with that question concerning Israel's rejection of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he knows his readers would ask the question, well, Paul, 
You talk about the gospel, and in the Old Testament, there are all these promises concerning Israel and how they would be converted and come to faith and be forgiven and come into the land and all this. But we look out and we see, Paul, that uh, the majority of the Jewish people, they, they rejected the gospel of Christ. And so in chapter 9, he, he explains that, well, those promises are true. God is not a liar. In fact, he was working and continues to work on this principle of election. So he talks about the sovereignty of God and salvation in chapter 9. Well, in chapter 10, he talks about man's responsibility and how the Israelites rejected the Lord Jesus because of their self-righteousness. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness. Here comes the righteousness of Christ offered in the gospel. There's a competition. They're competing with Christ, and so they reject the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter 10, he then talks there about, um, or chapter 11, rather, he, he begins to talk about uh, this olive tree as an illustration. And uh, the Old Testament patriarchs, the fathers, they were the root, and then the branches grow forth from that. That was Old Testament Israel. And those branches that did not bear spiritual fruit were cut off. But then he talks about the unnatural branch that was grafted in to this tree, and the unnatural branch was the Gentiles. So remember, the gospel was turned from the Jews and then offered to the Gentiles, as we see in Acts chapter 13. And so we've seen that. And then Paul is talking about how there is a future for Old Testament Israel, the people of God, uh, Paul's ethnic brethren, the nation of Israel. And so he talks about this future conversion in chapter 11. And we saw that. And so he talks about how it will be that through the, the redemption and the salvation of the Gentiles through the Lord Jesus Christ, that their enjoyment of that salvation will, in fact, one day before Jesus comes back, provoke uh, the, the majority of Israel to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says in 1125 uh, that I do not want you brethren, to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. And we looked at that and considered, considered those words of the apostle. And so by the time Paul gets at the end of this chapter, you know, this is one letter, he's probably written it in one sitting under the inspiration of the Spirit, He's thought about all of these glorious truths of the gospel. The fact that we deserve God's wrath and curse, but yet God cursed his son so that we don't have to receive that. And then he talks about how God sovereignly works. And before the foundation of the world, he knew a people and he set apart a people for himself. And, and how this all works out in space and time. And the Israelites reject Jesus. Then the Gentiles come in and all, how all this works out. And so finally, at the end of this chapter, you see it there in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And all that's to say that Paul's doctrine, apostolic teaching, biblical theology should always lead to doxology. Praise to God. In fact, some men of old have said this very thing based on what we're seeing here. And uh, we see that, that Paul's teaching leads to this spontaneous praise. It is as, as if he is just saying, can we just stop for a minute? Can I just catch my breath? Can I just praise God? Can you just praise God with me? 
And so let's do that this morning. May Paul's praise become our praise as we consider what it is he talks about here. And as we think about what I've just said, that theology should lead to doxology, one has written this. He said, we must be aware of an undevotional theology and an untheological devotion. Some people want to speculate and contemplate all of the finer points of theology and the the ages past, you know, men argued about how many angels could dance on the head of a pen and all this, and, and there's all of that. But then there are people who say, I just want to love Jesus. Don't give me all that theology. But then the question is, which Jesus will you love? Who do you serve? And so there's that. And one Southern Presbyterian of days past said this. He said, to know God is to love God. And to love God is to enjoy God. That's our chief end, isn't it? What is man's chief end? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And we must know God through Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to mine the glories. We're going to seek to do that, to mine, to expose, exposit the glories of Paul's praise here as it is presented to us in this text. And, you know, some have called this letter Paul's Mount Everest. And so we're going to climb up to the top of Everest with him and look down and see the depths. We're not going to see them completely. But we're going to gaze at the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God in these things that he mentions here. And so we just have two headings this morning. The first one is this. We have here the reasons for our praise in verses 33 through 35. There are many reasons for which we ought to and do praise the living and true God. But in our passage, Paul gives several here as he puts his pen down, as it were, and gets on his knees to praise God. He says, oh, in verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's talking about God's wisdom, God's knowledge And he's talking about the riches of them and how deep that richness is of them both. And some have pointed out that here Paul begins to scratch the surface of something we call the incomprehensibility of God. And that doesn't mean that God is unknowable. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. God has also given us his word, his law his commandments, his gospel, that we may know him. And so, God is knowable. But even so, when we know what we know about God, it's just the surface. After all, God is eternal. And so, Paul scratches the surface here, and he mentions these riches. And he says here that the wisdom and knowledge of God are deep. What is the wisdom of God? When we talk in human terms... Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge. Some have said it's the art of daily living. Uh, One has written this. He he said, this is an old theologian, Louis Burkhoff. He said in man um, that wisdom is related to knowledge. In man, knowledge is acquired by study. But wisdom results from an intuitive insight into things. In man, knowledge is more theoretical, but wisdom is more practical. But with God, 
His wisdom is characterized by absolute perfection. It is, and I quote, that perfection of God whereby he applies his knowledge to the attainment of his ends in a way which glorifies him most. That is to say that God does all things in the best way. Jeremiah 10 and verse 12 says about God, He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by His wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at His discretion. And so, you know, the psalmist, he looks at himself and he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The heavens declare the glory of God. Wherever we pan our eyes, we see God's majesty, His power, and His wisdom. We can look at our fingernails and praise God for fingernails. We can talk about the digestive system and praise God for that when everything's working properly. You know, when you get older, your check engine light comes on. But that's because we live in a fallen world. But God is, he's all wise. He's the all wise God. And then here Paul mentions God's knowledge. One says, knowledge is that perfection of God whereby he, in an entirely unique manner, knows himself and all things, all things possible and actual in one eternal and most simple act. We could spend a lifetime of learning and we would not know all things possible. And our learning is knowledge upon knowledge, precept upon precept, but God's is in an instant. And he knows all things, all things possible. And we talk about the omniscience of God, that he is all-knowing. And of course, men today, perhaps this has been true of us at times, but men today uh, are prideful. You know, knowledge alone puffs up, the apostle says. And uh, unbelievers today deny God's existence, or men are only willing to accept the truths of Scripture if they can understand those truths completely. But here's what God says in his word. In Job 38, remember, there's Job. He was suffering. He didn't know why. He was a righteous man, and his friends come. They give their advice. They try to read the providence of God. Job, this is why you're suffering. You're in sin. Job, this is why you're suffering. This is... Then finally, God comes out of the whirlwind. And he says this in Job 38. Um, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who has put wisdom in the mind Who has put wisdom in the heart? Well, that's God. It is God alone, the scriptures tell us, who looks on the heart, who knows the ways of all men and all the days of our lives in an instant. Is there any wonder why in Psalm 139, David is contemplating this knowledge of God and he says, it is too much for me. It is too high for me. I cannot attain it. Of course, in Colossians 2, 3, Paul says there about the Lord Jesus Christ. In him are hidden what? All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, there is that secret group infiltrating the church at Colossae. Hey, if you really want to know the truth, come here and join our club. And you have to have the secret handshake and do all of those things. And Paul says, nope. If you know Jesus, you know, and you have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because he is the revelation of the true and living God. But Paul here takes us deeper, other than just trying to scratch the surface, the surface, I don't know what a surface is, trying to scratch the surface of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He says there 
In verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So what is he talking about when he talks about these judgments, you know? Um, in Scripture, and the word can mean this elsewhere, um, it can mean God's judicial sentences. So the judge takes a, makes a verdict and he enforces the punishment and so forth. So in space and time and also at the day of judgment, God has and will uh, execute his justice upon men. In Psalm 22 and verse 28, it says he rules over the nations. In Job 12, 23, it says he makes the nations great, then destroys them. Hmm. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. But this word can also refer to God's determinations, his decisions, the decisions of a judge, that is, of the ruler, therefore a decree. And of course, it would make sense that Paul is using this word judgment in that sense, that he is talking about the decree of God, what God determined before the world began. Why do I say that? Because he's been talking in chapter 9 about what? Election, the sovereignty of God. And so one says that God's wisdom expresses itself in his decrees, and his decrees determine the path his decisions actually take in human history. And so he mentions his judgments, probably referring to the decree of God. But also his ways, there in verse 33 as well. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So what does he mean by ways? I think he means his dealings with men. We could say the ex execution of his decree. How he puts all of the things that he has decreed in place. Again, in space, in time, on earth, and so forth. He created things, all things, and then he works all of his decree out. I think Paul here is talking about his providential dealings with men. And when you think as well about this whole discussion he's gone through just before our passage, our text for this morning, he talks about how the Jews rejected Christ and so the Gentiles come in. That's going to provoke the Jews one day. They're going to believe in Christ. And then there's going to be this, this glorious uh, revival just before Christ comes back. And so he's talking about how are his ways past finding out. And so, um, and by the way, when he talks about past finding out, the idea is investigating or tracing. So you want to be a detective and try to connect all of the dots together that that God is doing in this world. You can't do it. Can't do it. And so then what is the reason for Paul's praise here? It is that God's knowledge and wisdom are so deep that God's decree and his providences, his dealing, dealings with men are unsearchable and past finding out. That God is in the process of working all things according to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11 tells us. And he does this in such a way that he alone will be glorified. It is to say that we cannot fully and we will never fully understand exactly what he is doing in the world. Remember, Paul has called this... Um, the way that this gospel will go throughout history between the Jews and the Gentiles, he has called it what? 
a mystery. And it's revealed to us. And so we can only know it because God has told us about it. But even how all this works out, we can't put it together with our puny little human minds. That is to say we're not God. And so here again, we are talking about the incomprehensibility of God, the independence of God. And all of this is another way to say that God is God. God of the Bible, Paul's God, the living and true God, is in fact God. The God above all gods. All other gods, of course, are false. He is the living and true God. And this is amazing to Paul, and we see that here in the text, and it is a reason for him to praise God. Now, I must say as well, as we think about this, sometimes the ways of God seem negative, don't they? In our lives, we, we live in a fallen world, so tragedies happen. Uh, our careers don't go like we anticipated and hoped for. We spend thousands on an education, perhaps. And the next thing you know, after 10 years, we're not doing anything related to that. We're not making the money we thought we were going to make in all of this. Or we marry the person of our dreams. And 25 years later, that marriage ends in divorce. So what do we do? We try to connect it all and make sense of it all. What do we do? Some of you perhaps know of Elizabeth Elliot. And uh, she and her husband were newly married and became missionaries. I think it was South America to a tribe. And uh, they'd only been married two years. And they were ministering to this tribe that was really unknown. And her husband, Jim, was murdered. He was speared by the very same people he was trying to reach with the gospel of Christ. So eventually she comes back, and years later she marries another man, and her second husband, he, he develops cancer and dies a slow, painful death. And here's what Elizabeth Elliot wrote. Here's what she had to say about her life. The experiences of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful necessarily. But my belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct. It is by faith. And so we have to come back to that. We've, we live. Paul says, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And how do we get more faith? Paul has said it in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so like Elizabeth Elliot, like the Apostle Paul, whatever our life circumstances are, we cling, upon, we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and we cling to His promises that are in His Word. He tells us, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 38. And before that, he says, God causes all things to work together for good. That's what we do know is that God causes everything to work for our good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 28. And so even if it's difficulty, if it's tragedy, if it's unpleasant, if it's painful, if it hurts, or if it's even good and we enjoy it, God uses that in our life to, to conform us unto the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means He makes us to be more like Jesus. That's what that means. So we know that's what he's doing, but at the same time, we don't know everything he's doing. 
And you go back and survey the scriptures, and you'll find this. Abraham, God told Abraham, Genesis 12, I'm going to make you the father of, of many nations and all of this. Well, he never got to see that. But Israel, you know, 70 souls went down into Egypt. And out of that, millions came, the nation of Israel. Moses was 40 when he left Egypt. He was 40 years old when he was in the wilderness. And at the ripe age of 80, finally, he was sent by God to free God's people from the Egyptians. Paul himself, Paul himself suffered. In 2 Corinthians 6, he talks about the troubles, the hardships, the sleeplessness, all of these things that he experienced because he was a follower and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in Philippians 1, he talks about his imprisonment. And yet he has joy in prison, in chains. In fact, he sees an opportunity and he's preaching the gospel in prison and nearly the whole praetorium guard becomes Christian. So we don't know exactly what God is doing and what he is able to do. Adoniram Judson, a 19th century missionary to Burma, uh, Myanmar, um, he went there, and after six years, he had no converts to Christ. Lord, here am I, send me. Six years later, uh, Lord, I'm still here. No converts. Finally, a convert. And then years later, we are told 40% of those people are now Christians. And of course, there's Christ himself. Jesus begins his ministry. He calls his disciples. He says, follow me. Okay, where are we going, Lord? Well, I will teach you. Come on. Three years later, he finally says, uh, by the way, the Son of Man, he's got to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed, and he's going to be crucified. Oh, and by the way, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and come after me. That's the Christian life. And as people point out, well, if you look at the cross with, without God's promises and explanation through Scripture, it would seem like a failure if you were there. But we know what Christ was doing. He was paying for the sins of his people, and he rose from the dead. And so all that's to say that the way to the crown is first through the cross. And we can't connect all the dots. In Isaiah 55, God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts and ways above yours. So if you look at the text this morning, he brings in some reinforcement. He, he quotes several passages of Scripture in verses 34 and verse 35. Um, he quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And verse 34 is from Isaiah 40 and verse 13. Verse 35 is from Job 41 and verse 11. So he asks these three questions from the Old Testament. Number one, it is, um, who has known the mind of the Lord? No man. God has to reveal his mind to us. Um, or who has become his counselor? You know, has God ever, you know, buzzed you? And that means call you on the phone. I'm old. Um, has he ever texted you? And, and I don't mean this irreverently, but said, hey, I need some help here. No. We go to God for counsel. We go to God for understanding, to have his mind, to have the mind of Christ. And then in verse 35, it says, Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. You know, who has you know, given to the Lord so that the Lord 
is indebted to him. No man. In fact, Paul says in Corinthians, he asks this question, what do you have that you have not received? Again, God is God. We are his creatures. And so let's just step back and consider that God is God. Um, He is inexhaustible. He is infinite. We are finite. He is the creator. We are his creatures. He is the redeemer. And those of us who are Christians are the redeemed. He is our shepherd. And we are the sheep of his pasture. And so with Paul, we praise the living and true God for the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, for his judgments and his ways. Now, the second and last point is verse 36. It's only one verse, um, and yet it's so profound. And so the second and last point is that praise is our reason for being. We are human beings. Why do we be? Why are we being? Why do we exist? It is for praise to the living God. Verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So Paul is continuing his train of thought, talking about the majesty of God, the supremacy of God, the inexhaustibility of God, the incomprehensibility of God. In verse 36, he continues and says, For, just consider this. And he says, For of him. This verse is one of those big ones in Scripture. It answers one of the, the big questions of life. You know, maybe you thought about this, you young people. If you haven't already, I, I am... If I were a betting man, I would say this. You will one day think or ask this question. Why am I here? And does it make sense? I get up. I go to school. I eat. I play. I do this. I go to bed. I get up. I go to school. I do this. I eat. I play. I go to bed. Or later, I get up. I go to work. I drive. I sit in traffic. I pound my steering wheel. Come back home. Or you pound your computer with Zoom, whatever you're doing these days. And you do it day after day after day after day. What's the point? Well, this verse answers that in part. And let's see what he says. He, he first of all tells us that God is the source of all things. He says in verse 36, for of him. Now, these prepositions carry much weight in this verse. The words of, through, and two, for of him are all things. God is the source of all things. He is the creator, except sin. Sin is a mystery. We have to admit that. We do admit it. The Bible says, for God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He didn't put sin in the heart of Adam. But we also believe that God created all things in the space of six days by the word of his power and all very good. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And so God is the creator. He is the source. In Psalm 33, you might want to jot this scripture down, the reference. Psalm 33, verse 6, also verse 9. We have an inspired commentary on Genesis 1. 
It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And by the way, verse 9 says this, He spoke, and it was done. God did not speak creation into existence through millions of years of stuttering. He spoke. It was done. That's what the Bible says. We believe that, Hebrews 11.1, by faith. Not by looking under rocks or looking at bones or examining all these things that have fallen within the crust of the earth and all of that. Those things can be helpful. But we interpret the world in light of the spectacles of Scripture, as one put it. Revelation 21 and verse 6, it says that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But he's not only the creator. If you look there in verse 36, for of him and through him are all things. He is the sustainer. Our God is not the God of deism. You know, you used to have to wind up a watch and uh, there were men this was popular around the time of the founding of this nation. There, there were men who were deists, and they believed that God created things, and he, he created the earth, the world, like a watch, and he, he wound it up with all this energy. For kids, it was like that little car that you just you, you put it in reverse, and you put it in reverse, and you back it up, and then you let it go, and it phew, takes off. Crazy like. Well, there are those who think God created the earth like that. He created it with all this energy. Then he just steps away, and he watches, and he, see, he, he looks to see what happens. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, through him are all things. This is the doctrine of providence. The providence of God. He governs, in all of his wisdom, he governs all of his creatures, all of their actions. In 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12, it says this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory. The victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Someone might say, well, I worked very hard all those years. I've earned money. I put myself through school. I worked two and three jobs, and uh, I've worked all of these years, and look at my little kingdom I've got. I did this, and I did it my way, by the way. Well, that's partly true, but who gave you the strength? Who blessed you with the riches? Who gave you the intellect? God did. In his mercy, he did that for you. In Acts 17, the apostle there, Paul, remember a Hebrew, kind of sheltered within the nation of Israel and around all of his church family and all of that, he goes to the Greeks, you know, he goes to like San Francisco and, uh, or a place where there's lots of learning and maybe that's allegedly Berkeley. I know some guys that minister there, so I can say that. Um, there are smart people that teach and have gone there, no doubt. But Paul, you got to think, he was, he was a little, maybe he was shaking in his shoes, his sandals. But he gets the confidence that comes from the Spirit. And he says this, of God. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. 
And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own prophets has, or poets has, have said, for we also are his offspring. Paul says he gives to all life, breath, all things. God has sustained us to this very hour with our breath. What a message for people who are so scared right now that they will develop this respiratory disease. Even if it's true that, oh, it's deadly and all of this. It can be, but so can the flu, so can riding in a car. In fact, your existence is deadly because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he reminds us that God is the, the great sustainer, and then he, he tells us that God is the reason or the final call, cause of all things. He says, to him are all things to whom be glory forever. We talk about soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Here it is. And to him. He's made all things for whom? Why has God created you and me and made all things? Children, why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so this is one of life's answers to one of life's greatest questions. Why do I exist? For God's glory, the glory of the living and true God. He's given me life. He's given me breath. He sustains me. Why? That I might look to Him and glorify Him. Not that I add to His glory, but I reflect it back to Him. And how do I do that? How do you glorify God? By loving Him and doing what He commands. And so, Paul models this for us here. You know, I just want to mention as well, when we talk about our existence. In Matthew 6, Jesus is talking there again about some of the great issues of life, and that is worry and fear. Matthew 6, He says, Do not worry. Do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. This is what the Gentiles do, they worry. And then, in addition to that, he gives them reason not to worry. He talks about the lilies of the field and how they're clothed, and not even Solomon and all of his glory was clothed like that, and God is the one who clothes them. But then, he, he points us to the birds of the air. And he says, your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he says this, are you not of more value than they? Listen to me. Jesus points to the birds. Our Heavenly Father gives them the worm. He feeds them and he says this. Are you not of more value than they? And it's not because we're so great. It's not because we've obeyed perfectly. It's because we exist. Why? Because we are made in God's image. We are made to glorify God. We were made to be the, the rulers under his rule. If you look at Adam, to take dominion over the earth and all of these things. 
And so the problem is we cannot glorify God when we come into this world because of our sin. You can't sin and glorify God at the same time. You can obey God outwardly, but what does the scripture say? God looks upon what? The heart. In our hearts, Jeremiah 17, they, it tells us there the, the heart is deceitfully wicked. It's desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. So we need a new heart. And how does that happen? It happens through the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit. See, our sins have separated us from our God. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so we can have that restored fellowship with God. You know, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2, God turns to his people. There again, they had rejected him. And he says, look, you have rejected me, the fountain of living waters. And you have made for yourselves broken cisterns, all of these idols, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's foolishness. It's wastefulness. And that's what our idols do. They leave us high and dry. They leave us hungry for more. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm here to restore fellowship between you and the living God. And he says, I have water to give you. And if you take it and drink of it, it's living water. And if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And so in order to glorify God, in order to enjoy him, we have to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then, brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and your praise meter is on empty, consider this God we serve. Consider the living and true and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and who He is and all of His glory, how He's revealed Himself to us, how unsearchable His ways are, His judgments past finding out. And how he works all things together, even for our good, who love him and are called according to his purpose. And consider his sovereign grace, his mercy for you, in light of his wrath and his justice that he will pour out on others at that horrific day of judgment. And so what do we say to the unbeliever then about this text? We tell them you were created not only to glorify God, but to enjoy Him. And that Jesus Himself was involved in their creation. In John 1, it says, There is nothing made without Him that was made, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can say, without Jesus, as another has said, we can say, without Jesus, you wouldn't exist. And so the very one who helped to create you is the one who came to save you, the Lord Jesus Christ. How unsearchable is that? How marvelous is that? And why would you refrain from coming to him? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, like Job, we put our hands over our mouths like Job, we say, though you slay me, yet we will trust in you. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us faith to follow you all the days of our lives. Even as the old hymn writer says, may our love for you, may we never outlive our love for you. And may we bring you glory and praise 
And until we are among the saints who are perfected, we pray, O Father, that you would continue to forgive us through the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.